0: Today, we welcome Pat Dossett. I was super excited about interviewing Pat, not just because he's leading a purpose-driven company, which makes him my kind of people, but because of his past. Pat's an ex-Navy SEAL. Now if you know me at all, you know that someone like me and someone like Pat could be no more different. To put it softly, I'd last five minutes in SEAL training. So I had all the questions about Pat's passion for the small steps in their ability to empower people to fulfill their potential. That's what Pat is all about. He is CEO and president of Made For, a company he co-founded with Blake Mycoskie, who you probably remember is the founder of Tom's Shoes. I'm so excited to share today's conversation. So sit back and enjoy. How does the activist land the corporate dollars to make change? How does the child lead a movement? Hello, Greta, anyone? And how did the millennial convince the boomer? What do these situations have in common? They had make or break moments where influence was created and light bulbs went off. I'm Rebecca Nedelik, and this is Nuance of Impact, a podcast to get lost in the stories of those making change. Together, we'll chat, learn, and ponder the nuanced make or break moments that make social impact so impactful. All right, it is Friday evening, and today I'm excited to welcome Pat Dossett. I thought it was Dossett, but it is not. That is me putting a French spin on it. It's Pat Dossett, CEO and president of Made For, I'm really excited to have you here today, Pat. Great.
1: Thank you. Uh, excited to be here.
0: How's your day gone so far?
1: It's been a busy day. Um, but it's been it's been good. I actually got to start with an ocean swim. And anytime I can get in the water, it's a happy day for me. So started with an ocean swim and then it's been back to back Zoom meetings since then, but all good.
0: Oh wow. What time did you go out?
1: Uh, we left at six this morning.
0: Oh my gosh. That's amazing. <laughs> That's what a great way to start your Friday.
1: Yeah, my wife is always happy anytime I come back and say that I didn't see any sharks. That's a win. So uh, we'll take it.
0: <laughs> Does that happen often?
1: You know what? It's funny. I've never seen a shark on an ocean swim. out. I live in Los Angeles. And so I've never seen a shark on an ocean swim uh, or I had never seen one. And um, for the longest time, my wife was was really adamant that um, she wasn't happy when I would go swim by myself, which I would do sometimes because I couldn't find a swim buddy. And so when the Apple Watch came out and they had the feature where you could actually make calls from the watch. She made me get one the day it came out, so because she thought, "All right, if you have an Apple Watch, you're you're safe. You can call me if something goes wrong." And so we go. I think on a Saturday morning and get get an Apple Watch. And that afternoon, I go for a swim and I I do my you know my typical swim. And then I'm I usually swim a few hundred yards off from the shore. And so I I'm finishing my swim and I turn to go uh, to start swimming back into the beach. I say, well, oh, I'm going to try this watch out and see if uh, if it works. And I try to call my wife. I say, you know, call Kim. And sure enough, the watch works as as advertised. And talk to my wife. Hey, honey, everything's good. Great swim. I'm swimming in now. She's like, okay, wonderful, lovely. And so I get off the phone and I start, or you get off the watch. I start swimming in, and I get probably 100 yards off of the, uh, maybe 50 yards off the beach, and I see this like. Probably seven foot great white, just kind of meander on by. And I've never <laughs> seen, I had never seen a shark come to that point. And the first time I have this watch and I see one, so um, they're out there, but uh, I think they're less interested in me than I am in them. So, so oh it.
0: my gosh, that sounds <laughs> terrifying, but you're right. They probably are less interested than you in you than they are in whatever else is around the other fish.
1: For sure. I mean, I always tell my wife it's it it's more dangerous getting on the 101 or any of the uh, the highways here in California than it is getting in the ocean. So it doesn't mm-hmm. seem to appease her, but that's my line.
0: That's a good line. I yeah. mean it's also good perspective. I statistically
1: mean statistically
0: okay. it's true. Statistically it's true. Fair. <laughs> okay. I guess like and Kate, this sort of dives us right in. Are you like do you get afraid of sharks when you're in the water?
1: You know, um I they are on my mind at times. There's some days you get you get out to the water and it just for whatever reason looks a little bit sharky. If it's overcast or the waters, maybe there may be a red tide or the water's a little bit more turbid and it's hard to see, it's kind of like, oh, this feels a little bit sharky. Um, But I wouldn't say it's something that I'm fearful of. It's it's interesting, and I know we'll talk about uh, Made for in a little bit, but our actually our lead advisor is a neuroscientist out of Stanford, uh, Dr. Andrew Cooperman. And one of the first times that Andrew and I actually spent any length of time together, we were um, Andrew asked me to join him on a research study, and we were off the coast of Mexico studying fear and how you can mitigate fear using breath and you know, different vision protocols, looking at the horizon, and so. They would measure your—he um, calls it arousal states or your your level of um, arousal. They would they would measure how you're feeling um, in the beginning, and then you would go get in the water, and then they'd measure how you're feeling afterwards, and then you would try these various breath protocols to see if that would change things and prior to going out to mexico andrew said oh yeah we're gonna go dive with sharks and it's gonna be awesome and so i, I got a hall pass from my wife said honey we're gonna go dive with sharks it's with stanford neuroscientists i'm sure it's gonna be fine and then as we got out there it became apparent that we weren't just diving with sharks so guadalupe island off the coast of mexico is one of three places in the world where you can actually where great whites collect and you can dive with them and the visibility is enough so that you can see them and, and dive safely with them and so they had the shark cages and all that but um the the way that they were going to elicit this fear response or or, uh, um, increase your level of arousal states was to actually leave the cage and and dive and swim with the great whites out in the out in the open water and so it was fascinating because um i hadn't i hadn't planned for that i didn't know we were going to be doing that and then we get out there and we do it and once you're in the water with them and you see them moving around and, and when we were in the water, there would be, you know, anywhere between five to eight great whites at a time. Some of them are swimming deep, some of them are up on the surface, some are at various levels of the water column. You start to get a sense of how they move, how they operate, that they really don't care much about you. um, At least in my brief experience with them. And, um, and yeah, so it was this really interesting experience, but I came out of it thinking, okay, like, I would have thought I would be more comfortable in the water with sharks. And to some degree I am, but now that I've seen them in the water, I have those visions of sharks in my mind that sometimes I project out when I'm swimming. And so I'll be swimming. Imagine if you watch like shark week on discovery channel, then you go for an ocean swim. There's definitely a little bit of that at play where I'm like, Oh man, these are big animals and they're here. And, um, but you know, it's all good.
0: Wow. I bet it's almost like, I mean, it would be almost similar to going for a hike. I mean, you're always looking in the bushes to see if there's a cougar or a bear, and you know, you're probably not going to see them, but yeah, it's probably similar. And, Casey, okay, so you said you, I know we were briefly going to talk about this or focus on this really, but um, tell us a little bit about Made For.
1: Yeah. So, Made For is a company that I've been, um, that I had the privilege to co found alongside uh, Blake McCoskey, something we've been working on for a few years now. And, the premise of made for was we wanted to, to start a company that could help people bring their best self to the world. And we really viewed our, our larger mission as that we can help others bring their best self to the world that they in turn would make their communities, their, you know, the people they interact with and and their world better. And so it was this idea that um, large change happens at the individual level. And so let's start with individuals. And so that was kind of the overarching mission and um, what it, what it, turned into was um, we developed this 10 month program alongside um, uh, Andrew Huberman, a neuroscientist out of Stanford and a number of other uh, scientific advisors and experts, but really designed to help people connect with the habits uh, and practices that allow them to bring their best self to the world. So it's a 10 month program. Um, Each month focuses on one foundational basic habit. So we look at things like hydration and gratitude and movement and nutrition and social connection and nature All of these very fundamental basic practices that we're all familiar with that our grandparents told us, like, hey, get outdoors or write thank you notes, things that we know are good for us, but for whatever reason, we've grown disconnected from. And so what we've done is designed a program where over a course of 10 months, we give you a series of very small intentional steps to do almost on a near daily basis that allow you to... Um, shift your mindset and behaviors in an enduring positive fashion that really do help you bring your best self to the world. So um, mm-hmm. that's made for uh, in a nutshell.
0: And okay, so I feel like what you just said is probably when people think of why scale change or um, creating a movement, I mean, we're often thinking about a lot of, a lot of people coming together in order to create something big or or different. And -hmm. you said that it's about the individual and, and that that's where it stems from. Where did that context come from?
1: Oh, wow. So I, I guess this, this dovetails a little bit into my past experience in the military. And so, uh, and you and I have talked about this before, but I spent nine years in the SEAL teams and ultimately decided to leave the teams to to try to do things outside of the military. But one of the things that I really appreciated for my time in the teams is that with a small group of committed people, you can actually have very large positive outsized effects that you can, um, you can create change that far um, exceeds any one individual on the team or even a small team's kind of capacity. And so that was something that was really exciting to me and, kind of the through line of, of when we came together for made for what we were trying to do with a small team create positive outsized effects and we wanted to do something that not only that mattered but something that we cared about I care a lot about human potential and how can you help people realize their full potential uh, my partner Blake um, through his work with Tom shoes and just everything that he's involved in has really viewed business as a way to transform the world for good and so we aligned on this on this common vision but we recognize that if we if we put our focus on you know trying to build a really big company or trying to reach a certain number of people or we set any really big audacious metrics <clears throat> that in some way that might skew our efforts and we might lose sight of where the change is really happening and the ha- the change is really happening on the individual level and it, it speaks to the larger you know, ARC and ethos have made for in that these these transformations that people make, they make them one step at a time, right? Very basic fundamental practices done with intention and awareness of benefits your efforts are creating through one step. And so I think as a company, we've tried to mirror that and mirror that in how we think about things and how we do business. And we recognize that if we do these small individual steps on a daily basis well, that Everything else will take care of itself, but it starts with convincing one person to take one small step and see the benefits and then continuing that process over time. So mm. that's how we think about it.
0: And human potential, something you're passionate about, where did that come from and why are you so passionate about it?
1: Yeah. It's it's interesting. I there I mean there are there are a couple of points in my life where this word potential has surfaced. And the first that I can remember is really it, it was interesting. I was at the at the Naval Academy for for undergrad. And at the Naval Academy, we'd have these forestall lectures. And so every five or six weeks, they would bring in a leader a head of state or someone that was well-renowned and well-regarded that would talk on a different topic. And honestly, we had so many amazing speakers and I can't remember any of them or anything that any of them said, but we had one, his name was Dr. Bernard Harris. And he was the first African-American to conduct a spacewalk. And I believe that he was the the medical officer on that particular uh, NASA mission. But what Dr. Harris said was, if there's one word I hate hearing more than anything, one word in the English language that I could pick out that I hate more than anything, it's the word potential. Because if somebody tells me that I have potential, it means that I'm not doing everything I can with what I've been given. And something about that stuck and resonated and it wasn't what I expected to hear from this world-renowned astronaut and and, and pioneer that he hated the word potential because I had always associated potential with a very positive thing but his spin on it was if someone tells you, you have potential it means you're not doing everything with what you what you've been given and i left the i left the naval academy and was fortunate enough to get a slot to SEAL training out of the academy. And so I had always wanted to be a Navy SEAL. Since I was in seventh grade, I'd read a book that planted the seed and become my focus for most of my youth. And when I was in SEAL training, I noticed a kind of a curious phenomenon is that all of the biggest, fastest, strongest people, those with the naturally endowed talent, generally those were the first people to leave training and decide that it wasn't for them. We have this bell that you could ring and ring it three times and you're done with training. You don't have to be cold or wet or tired anymore. And all of those people left. And then so when we got to the end of training, what we were left with was, you know, a rather unremarkable group of people in that you wouldn't be able to pick them out from a lineup. You could just look at them and say, okay, I don't see anything special about you. But they were able to, by leveraging a mindset and I think leaning on some very fundamental basic practices, were able to do some truly exceptional things. And obviously training is one thing, but it's another thing to go on and do it on deployment and doing in work and doing it in life. And I saw these people leverage and lean on this this mindset that allowed them to maximize their potential in a truly transformational and powerful way. And that stuck with me and stayed with me. And I, I really, really loved that. Fast forward a few years, I I left the military. I knew at some point I wanted to have a family and I couldn't see how I could give my all to the military and then also be on a path where I would have a family at some point. And the way that I transitioned out was I said, all right, you know, I love jumping. I love diving. I love shooting. Those are all great. But what I love most, going back to what I said earlier, is with a small group of people creating large, positive, outsized effects. And so I viewed the best way for me to transition was I said, I'll go to business school. I'll change out my tool set a little bit. I'll meet some different people and and try to learn uh, different ways of viewing the world. And then hopefully, again, build a small team and do something positive and powerful. What I found in business school was that most of the classes that I took, I either wasn't very good at or they didn't resonate with me. Or I, I, when I see an Excel spreadsheet, I literally like break out in hives. It's an uncomfortable <laughs> situation for me. But one of the classes that I took that that really stuck with me was I actually audited an undergraduate class. Mm-hmm. So I was already an older person going through business school. And now here I am, the the really old dude sitting in the back of this, I think it was a freshman and sophomore class. But it was an intro. It, the class was Introduction to Positive Psychology, and so I went to I went to school at Penn, and Penn where Dr. Uh, Martin Seligman really created the modern field of positive psychology. And this course was taught by a woman named Dr. Angela Duckworth, who is well known for her research in grit, and grit as a determining factor for success. Well, I sat in the back of this class and I heard Angela talk about positive psychology, and and really the way that she framed it was, and the way that that Martin has framed it is that. There are two sides to the equation uh, in, in psychology and in medicine and psychiatry. One is how do you minimize the bad and how do you address downside risk and and address negative outcomes? And so that would be like, all right, stop drinking, stop eating bad things, stop doing this, stop. It's all the things you shouldn't do. And that's one way to, to look at it. The other half of the equation is what are the things that you can be in pursuit of these small positive things, whether they're acts that you take or ways that you can view the world or environmental things that you can shape, things that you can shape in your environment. What are those things that you can be in pursuit of that help unlock your best self and that allow you to bring your best self to the world and live in a, a state of, uh, as Marty put it, a thriving state? Mm-hmm. And again, that really resonated with me. I was like, oh, this is awesome. This kind of maps to a little bit of what I was seeing in the, in the teams in terms of Know, mindset matters more than your physical, innate physical gifts or, you know, anything else. And so I think all of this ties together with this word potential. I know we had talked about, you'd asked me in in preparation for this, you know, what's the difference between, you know, optimizing and potential or optimization and potential?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I noticed you use both words sort of interchangeably. We said, you know, are you optimizing in order to reach potential or, and what is potential? I think a lot of people, when they think about success, they're thinking about it in terms terms of hitting a certain dollar figure, or hitting a certain position. When potential is achieved, then you're usually hitting benchmarks. When you're hitting benchmarks, then you're usually finding success. And so I feel like when people think potential, they think success. And then with that, where does optimization come in and what's the difference between optimization and potential?
1: Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's such a great question. I think that when I think of, or when I hear the word optimizing, oftentimes I hear it used in a very narrow focus. So you're optimizing for one thing. All right, I want to optimize on career success or money or family or service or physical you know, attributes, whatever the thing is. Oftentimes when I hear people, especially in this human performance space, talking about optimization, they're talking about one specific thing. And by definition, that makes sense. You're going to optimize around one thing. Mm-hmm. What I think about potential Potential to me is the collection of of things that you have at your disposal and how they can be used to maximize your overall impact. Ideally, you're a winning partner in deciding what that is, right So what is success success for you is probably different than what success looks like for me, but potential, in my mind uh, or full you know unlocking your full potential is about looking across all of the different things that you can do. Selecting which ones you want to optimize for or which ones you don't. Ultimately it's about maximizing your impact and how you how you move through the world. So that at the end of your life, if you have the opportunity to reflect and look back, you can say, Yeah, that was the life I wanted to live and I made the difference that I wanted to make. I think so oftentimes you hear these success stories of people that from outward appearance have done everything right. They've made all the money, they've got the big house, they've got whatever the thing is, but you hear of them talk about it and there's this sense of emptiness or this sense of regret. They didn't pay enough attention to their kids or they didn't pay enough attention to their physical health. And I think when you're really looking at potential and helping someone realize their full potential, it's a holistic view. It's all of these things together and figuring out how do you want to allocate your time, your attention, your effort in a way that um, you can reflect back on and say, I achieved what I wanted to achieve.
0: Mm. And so on that, I guess, like, what does success look like for you at this point in your life? And not really, yeah, just what does success look like for you at this point in your life?
1: Yeah, that's uh, God, that's such a good question. I think doing what I love alongside people that I care about for the betterment of people that I'll probably never meet. If I am, if I'm doing something that I love, it, it probably means that I'm doing something that I have a natural inclination for. That I'm leveraging my unique gifts, and I've I've taken the time to understand where I add value, where I don't add value. But if I'm doing something that I love, it doesn't feel like work. And I also recognize that I am just one person. I love working on teams and every team that I've been a part of, I've always been the least intelligent person on the team. But I'm really good at working with a lot of intelligent people and bringing everyone together to achieve an impact or an effect. And so when I talk about towards, you know, to the betterment of people that likely never meet, it's this idea that it is not success for me if it's only focused on individual returns, right? If it's just about, making money or if it's just about, you know, my own personal wins, it's like that's not enough. That would be an unfulfilling life for me. Mm-hmm. But if I can, if I can map my effort to something larger than myself, a bigger cause, a bigger mission, then that to me is rewarding and enriching. And that to me is, is maximizing my full potential. So that's how I would define success.
0: Hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I think sometimes I mean, we talk about like success, and then you talk about fulfillment. And I think sometimes when people are so focused on success, and then they realize what what their benchmarks were for success didn't actually meet the need for fulfillment. And then what was the success worth? Like, why did you pursue it? And so is that sort of part of the mechanisms that you're trying to get across through Made for? 100%.
1: I think life gets a vote, right? I don't want to make people feel like I'm a robot and I've got all of these pretty boxes figured out and because that's that's frankly not the case, right? Life gets a vote. There's lots of friction. We all get knocked off course. Um, But the ability to recognize when you've gone off course and really to understand what your course is, recognizing when you've gone off course, giving yourself a little bit of grace and saying like, hey, I'm human. Life gets a vote. This is the way life goes. And being able to gently guide yourself back on track That process repeated over time is really something that we stress with Made For. Made For is probably the easiest, most challenging 10 months that a lot of our members have faced. It's it's easy in the fact that we tell people to do very simple things, track your water, start to cultivate a little bit of a gratitude practice, get some exposure to nature, understand how what you're putting in your body uh, and the effects it's creating on you. It's so a very small, simple task, but sticking to something for a 10 month period of time is not easy. It's very, very hard. And so this process, and we, and we talk a lot about it throughout the program is that, Hey, you're not going to execute this perfect. There is no perfect. You're just doing the best that you can. But by repeating this process of departing and being aware of when you've departed and come back on track, that's a very valuable thing. And where people finish the program is this, they have a greater sense of agency and control in their life and understanding of how the small moments throughout their day are affecting them and where they want to head next. So the goal with made for is that, you know, what, center and what right feels like, and you no longer need made for it. You can go off and, and achieve what you want to achieve and recognize that the friction that you experience along the way is is a part of the process and is actually a signal of growth and lean into it. So,
0: hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I feel like, what what role do you feel like failure plays in that process? I mean, I just think about, especially with like trends and fads, and we're talking about potential and optimization, I guess it sort of seems that people tend to be on a path and then like the path just blows up. You know what I mean? Like the path's gone and then people get lost and they lose themselves. And then it feels like they, they failed. So they don't tend to go back to the path with made for when people fail and they like, how do you sort of bring people back on?
1: Yeah, it's, I love that. So we've had a few members tell us six, seven months into the program. They'll send us a note and they'll say, I've been so embarrassed. I don't know how to say this, but I have six boxes stacked up in my room and I missed I, you know, I started five days late on the first challenge and then I didn't feel like I could catch up. And so I just, I froze and I disengaged, uh, but I want to find a way to start again. And, and, and so, we, you know, that happened early on, in, early on in our, pro in, in the formation of the company and then serving our members. And so now we've baked messaging in to to help people understand that this is not a program of perfect. It's a program of progress and we're here to support you in that and, um, and we built Buffer in along the way to help people navigate late starts and departures and whatnot. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, the idea is uh, just continue to hammer that message for people because people are, are really, really hard on themselves. And, and I think most people would agree that they have this voice inside their head that is like – that is probably on a on a continuous loop and is oftentimes negative, right? It's just continue to play and judging themselves, judging their actions, measuring themselves against others, saying things that you would likely never say to anyone else, you but yet you would feel comfortable saying to yourself. And so we try to help our members understand that. That grace is a part of this, that you can't receive grace until you're willing to extend it. And you first have to extend it to yourself before you can extend it to others. So, um, yeah, that's how we think about it.
0: When you were talking about um, potential and that one speech that you heard, did it because of that? And I like our first interaction when I first reached out to you, you're very intentional with your time, which I have so much respect for. How, because you're sort of focused on this idea of potential and putting your whole heart into the things that you do. Um, How do you pick and choose? Because obviously you have to. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Pick and choose how I allocate my time.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. it's a good question. So we had talked a a little bit, I think the reason I bring it up is I think it relates to this, but you you had mentioned at one point, how do I think about end goal versus Mm -hmm. the kind of immediate near term goals? Yeah. Um, and I think that's, that's a good way of thinking about you know how, deciding how to allocate my time. And I have a really good, what I think is a really good visual for this. And so when you're learning how to do land navigation in the SEAL teams, mm-hmm. so this is why everyone has GPSs now and you can just pull well, now you can pull up your iPhone and look at it and know where you're at. Um, we always start with a map and a compass. So the very basic elements to understand how to move through terrain and, and navigate your, your way around an unfamiliar environment. And there are really two ways to navigate. Um, one is called point to point navigation. Um, and so, point to point navigation would involve you started at a known location and you plot out all the points that you want to go to along the way to your ultimate destination. And every so often, you would stop and you would pull out your compass and you would shoot bearings, basically, like. All right, I would I would see there's a mountaintop over there, there's a railroad crossing over there, there's a stream intersection over there. You'd shoot a few bearings and you would draw those lines on your map and see where they intersect. And that would tell you um, where you're at on the map. And so the more bearings you shoot, the more confidence you can have of you know you're in, in this precise exact location. And so you can continue to repeat that process depending upon the terrain and the you know the visibility. You might that might be something that you do every 400 yards, maybe it's every 800 yards, but until you get to your final location, you're constantly taking bearings and plotting your position on the map, slow, steady approach to get to where you're at. That's one way to to navigate, and probably the way that most everyone starts with uh, navigation using a map and compass. The other way is to take time in the beginning, understand where you're at, um, and really study the map, study all the terrain features on there, look at and then look at the map, look at the terrain and say, okay, there is a ridge line off to my right. There is a river off to my left. There's a mountain over there at three o'clock. There's these different features and understanding how you relate to those features and how those features relate to your ultimate destination of where you want to go. Hmm. And once you've taken the time up front to study the map and study the terrain very quickly you can put the map away you can put the compass away and you can almost start running to your destination you know if i keep the map over if i keep the mountain over here and the river on my left side i'm going to go for i can go for an hour i can go for 3 miles until i hit this particular road or until i hit this railroad or whatever and that will signal to me that then it's time to look at the map again understand the terrain and then take off again in another direction and so I, I love that visual because I think it maps very well to, you know, focusing on day-to-day near-term goals versus focusing on, you know, what's the bigger picture and where am I heading? Um, if you take the time to do the train navi- to do the map study and understand the train, you can move. It becomes very clear how you allocate your time in here. And now, no longer do you have to worry about the destination. You can just worry about the steps at hand. Where am I placing my foot here? How am I, you know, where do I, what needs do I need do I need to have some stuff and have some water, have some food, what do I need to do, but I can do that, be smooth and effective and move knowing that I'm headed in a general direction of where I want to go. And so
0: mm-hmm.
1: that's, that's how I think about that.
0: What I really sort of attached onto was when you said, I am looking, I'm navigating the space in advance that way. And it sounds like it's almost preemptive. So you understand how you relate and connect to those pieces around you.
1: That's it. That, that, you said it much more articulately than I did. No, I, you I said think, it. I just heard it. <laughs> no, no, it's great. I, and I think you know, made for is a perfect example. So when I when I left the military, went to business school, and then I ended up spending a few years at Google. And Google is a great place, right? Great food, great culture. <laughs> I like the how meat.
0: the first thing was like great food. <laughs> yeah, great food's culture. amazing.
1: <laughs> uh, you know, really smart people, amazing teammates. It's a very, very comfortable place to be, but it wasn't, it's not where I was finding my sense of purpose and mission and ultimately what I wanted to do. Um, Are you
0: talking about fulfillment?
1: Fulfillment. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I I didn't feel meaningfully connected to the work and the mission at hand. And that's an important part of, of who I am is that I have to have ownership and strong connection with the mission. Uh, and the purpose behind it, and I just didn't feel that in the in the roles that I was filling at Google and so Blake and I we'd been friends for a few years were were off on a trip together and he asked uh, asked a question to this group of guys that we were traveling with and he said, "You know if you could work on anything and and it could be purely a passion project, you didn't have to worry about money what would you how would you want to spend your time We went around the group and when it got to me, I said, you know I don't know what form this takes, but I love this concept of potential and helping people realize their full potential. And so I said, I think if I could work in business or effort or mission, it would be something in this human performance, human potential space, but I don't know what form that takes. And so right after the trip, Blake reached out to me, said, he said, you know, as soon as you had that response, I wanted to say, let's do it right away. I was really, it's something I'm interested in, really excited about, let's pursue this. And so a couple weeks later, we got together again, sort of just coming up with some ideas of what what could a business or what could an effort look like in this field? And we we finished our, our couple day working session and we really didn't have anything concrete. We had like, all right, we know we want to help people be better. And, um, and we know that, you know, we'll, we can, we've both been exposed to different things that might help people, but we don't have the answers and we're not experts in any of this. And so that's, that's kind of where we left it. But what we had was enough for me to say, I'm willing to step out of this very comfortable place, right? Very predictable, good paycheck. I knew I'd be able to care for my family, healthcare, food, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. We had enough where I, w- I was comfortable saying it's time to step off this and step onto this new, this new mission and this new purpose. And and really what we aligned on is our mission is to help people bring their best to the world. And we aligned on how he and I would work together, that we would always be transparent and open and honest and, and have clear lines of communication. I said, as long as we have a clear mission and a clear way of of working together, that's enough for me to leave. And so for me, that was that was, I guess in some respects, you know, that was the train that I needed to understand. And once I had those train features in place, I felt confident that like I could step off of Google and step onto this path. Certainly over you know a two year period of time, hit a number of friction points and all the stuff that you would experience Uh, when you're trying to build something from scratch Mm -hmm. but we kept those two things as kind of our true north and that allowed us to move forward with confidence and ultimately create made for as it is today so Mm.
0: is it it makes me wonder when you made the decision to leave the military it was for very specific reasons right like you left to start a family you left to pursue this part of your life um When do you know it's time to move into something else without just taking on more? Because I think that's usually the easiest way to pursue life is just to take on more. And then, you know, you start to have to prioritize what's working and what's not. And that's how you choose when to drop things. It doesn't really seem that that's how you do things. You've you've made very intentional decisions about where you go. How do you know when to make the shift?
1: Hmm. So to your your first question about being adaptable, I think Mm -hmm. that is... That's a hallmark I, I believe of most people in the special operations community is this this comfort of working in ambiguity and not having a clear picture of everything that's going on and there's a, a, a gentleman named Colonel John Boyd he, he's passed away a number of years ago but he's really considered the the modern founder of Air Force um, or of, of tactics in Uh, air warfare. And so John Boyd is is famous for creating this uh, this acronym called the OODA loop, which is observe, orient, decide, act. And Mm -hmm. so the whole idea is if you are in air combat, the first step is really to observe what's going on. The next is to orient where you situate next to everything else in the space from a time and distance and space standpoint. So observe, okay, I'm in I'm in the ocean, or I'm in combat theater, and here are the rules that apply. Orient. This is where my position is relative to everything else. Make a decision on what you want to do, and then get into action. And then, as soon as you act, fall back into that process again. So I've done something. Now I'm right back into observe, orient, decide, act. And the faster you can move through that cycle in any environment, the faster you can can adapt to. The changing situation, and that allows you to establish a competitive advantage, a, a tactical advantage, on you know, regardless of the environment.
0: I got so enthralled in what you were saying. What did you call it? The OODA loop.
1: The OODA loop, yeah. Observe, orient, decide, act. Very, very powerful. But particularly in in combat, but also in in business, right? You know, even the decision to leave Google and work on Made for. It's a constant set of playing this OODA loop out over and over and over again, ultimately because you want to be effective.
0: You're making a shift when you're getting to a point where you say, okay, I've done this. Now I'm ready to move on from the military, from Google, from whatever, in order to put my time, my potential into this. Yeah. What What is that process like for you? Like, What allows you to make that decision?
1: I have, I'm recognizing now that I have this recurring theme that I keep coming back to, but I would say that, you know, any of these transitions, whether it was to go from, go into the SEAL teams or to leave the SEAL team to go to business school or go to Google or to leave Google from made for none of those transitions happened with giant leaps, right? I didn't just dive headfirst into something new and jump off with two feet. Rather, it was a series of small steps over a period of time that allowed me to step off of of one path and step onto another path in a seamless fashion. So I don't view any of these as, you know, 90 degree right turns and doing something radically different. Rather, they're they're small changes in my path and in my trajectory that are ultimately going towards again this terrain navigation thing, the bigger thing that I want to work on. And so an example of that is I got engaged post-business school. Mm. And my fiance and I moved out to California. And so it was the first time in my life that I had a real, a serious girlfriend for a long period of time. It was certainly the first time I'd been engaged. And we moved to San Francisco into the this, into this small apartment and I started to work at Google right away. And so I was working at the Mountain View campus. For, for, those, of the, for those of your listeners that know the Bay Rusty Area. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, just uh, people that you know may have been in and around the Valley, the, that commute from San Francisco to Mountain View can take anywhere between 40 minutes to five hours, depending upon traffic, right? It's, it, it's really, really bad. So every morning I was getting up uh, really early, getting on the first bus. So Google has these buses that go everywhere and pick people up. And, and so I was getting on the first bus and going to work for probably probably an hour ride going in. And then I was catching a bus home in the afternoon and that ride would be two and a half hours, typically. And I personally, I'm cursed with this. I get seasick. I get motion sick very easy. And so I was just every day, I just felt crap. And so I would get home from a long day and I had to just sit on the couch for like 40 minutes, 45 minutes before I started to feel normal again and could have a conversation with my wife and just start our day. One of the things that I found was I was starting to lose a little bit of my individual growth trajectory in this process Mm -hmm. right so i wanted to be there for my fiance i wanted to do a good job at work Um, i wanted to carve out time for my own self-care whether it's working out or doing the things that i like to do but because of this you know long bus rides and just everything that's going on i just i didn't have the time to continue to maintain my own individual growth trajectory And it's a conversation I have with my wife, and I said, uh, I said, honey, next week uh, I'm just going to start getting up an hour earlier. I'm going to sacrifice an hour of sleep, but that hour, what it's going to do is uh, allow me to read anything that I want. One of the things that I really enjoy doing is constantly taking on new information and reading books from a whole bunch of different fields. I said, I just need to do this because I feel like I'm losing in trying to build our team growth trajectory and my, you know, in my work professional stuff, I've lost my individual growth path. And so mm-hmm. it started by reading for an hour every day before I got on the bus and started getting motion sick again. Well, that hour compounded over a couple of years led me to read a lot about behavioral economics, about positive psychology, about neuroscience, about all of these things that eventually
0: mm-hmm.
1: were the fabric in the web that helped support my perspectives as we started building Made for, And mm. so by the time it was, I was ready to leave Google, I there was already a mountain of work that had been done. I'd already taken thousands of steps that ultimately fed into this. And so I was at a point where it was like, yeah, of course I'm leaving Google to do this. It just makes sense. Mm. Those seemingly small and consequential decisions mm. actually were the very things that put me on my path so that when it was time to transition, that transition wasn't this radical... Super risky thing. It was something that was thoughtful and made all the sense in the world. That of course, this is the next step.
0: Hmm. Yeah, Hmm. that's interesting. I've noticed something through these interviews that is that I say that's interesting like all the time. So I'm trying to find out where. Like, wow, that's remarkable. But it is. I connected with the point that you had said previously, with which is just making time for the areas that you're also interested in, right? And that you built up all that understanding, passion, interest through that, which then led you to make that decision and say like, no, I'm not starting from ground zero. It's not me saying, you know, I'm quitting my job and I'm going to read a bunch of books on positive psychology and eventually I'm going to start a company. You kind of done that at the same time in parallel, right? Mm-hmm. Um, okay. I, so- I, I want
1: to bring, bring up something that you mentioned earlier that, that I didn't address. You had mentioned failure and what role does failure play. Mm-hmm. And I think failure is such a strong word and it's such a loaded word. And I think hmm. if depending upon the time horizon that you're looking at, something could could indeed be a failure, right? If you're looking on the order of a day or uh, uh, whatever, you could be a part of a business effort that ultimately fails. But if you're willing to take a long-term view and recognize and learn from the setbacks or the friction that you're facing and whether you call them failures or not, they're all learning opportunities. And as long as you're learning from them, there are no failures, right? There are just, there are steps that you had to take to get to, your ultimate destination. And had you not walked those steps, you wouldn't have the perspective that you have. You wouldn't have the tools that those failures, those setbacks gave you to allow you to ultimately be successful. And I I believe that
0: Mm.
1: every failure is valuable so long as you find the value in it.
0: Hmm. Yeah. And that's probably, that's the mindset piece you're talking about, right? It's sort of that resiliency mindset as well. Being able to see something as, okay, I I just learned from this. That's it. It wasn't a failure. It doesn't mean it's something that I put in a corner and never look at again. It's, I did it and I learned from it.
1: Yeah. And, and, And I think too, look, it's, this isn't something that you can just go through the motions on. And I recognize that there are setbacks that, um, Take a long time to find the value in and take a long time to process and to really let go of and set those back, you know, set the bags down. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, again, we're so hard on ourselves, much harder on ourselves than we would be on anyone else. If you can take that mindset of, hey, there is a silver lining here, there's some growth opportunity in this experience or the setback or this failure as long as you can keep that in mind and eventually process through things, um, you're ultimately going to be better off and, and you won't have any failures. You're just going to have life. And mm. that's the way life goes.
0: Okay, random question. Yeah. As we were talking about mindset, when you, I was listening to another interview, you know the interview, I, what it was with...
1: Oh, this was uh, maybe with Nick Hardwick? Yes. Yeah.
0: So I was listening to this interview and you were talking about I think it was being in a submarine and holding your breath and how you sort of take every instance with the next step rather than focusing on the goal being really far away. Yeah. yeah. So it was don't focus on the finish line, focus on first mile, second mile, third mile, and seeing that as the progress along the way.
1: Yeah. You know, everyone has some tale around, break a big thing up into manageable chunks or, mm-hmm. you know, you don't eat the cookie all at once, you take it one bite at a time. Or I, I think what gets lost a lot of times is you control the finish line. And okay. so you have the ability to move in the way that we talk about as we, we call it the horizon, right? So if the horizon is that thing that you're ultimately headed towards, you have the ability to bring that horizon into a place that feels manageable in your pursuit, knowing that, oh, I can make it this far with a It's called the seal delivery vehicle, this mini submarine, where you get get in the back of it with a few other people and you bring all your weapons and equipment in. And by the time everything gets loaded and you're on oxygen and the thing fills up with water and it's dark because the doors close, and we do these, we drive these at night. You have about this much room to move around. So if your primary air source goes down, you know, and you're in this small, tight cramped space that is moving. So for someone that gets seasick, I'm seasick because we're driving these things in about 10 feet of water. So you're getting seasick, you're getting cold cause you may be back there for five or six hours. You don't have a lot of space and you get dehydrated and you start cramping and then you start shaking cause you're so cold. All of these things that once you've done one of these, you know what's in front of you every time you do another one mm-hmm. and it can be challenging. And so if you were to think about That in its entirety, right when you get into that STV and think about everything in front of you, it's a lot to process Mm -hmm. and it would make you not want to get in the back of that boat. Um, But if you can focus on moving that horizon in or moving that finish line into a place where, okay, I know I can make it the first hour because... I'm not seasick. I actually feel pretty good right now and I'm not cold and I'm not thirsty. So that's awesome. And then you get to the second hour and you you start being seasick but you're like, "Well, I'm not I haven't cramped yet." Like that's cool. Like you just keep playing this game with yourself um but recognizing that you are ultimately you're the one that that's in control of that finish line.
0: And so what do you think is the difference between someone who's sort of able to go through that process, you know, break things up into chunks and then someone who isn't able? I it's
1: it's a really, really important point. So there's a, a woman named Carol Dweck out of Stanford, and so Carol is most well known for her research and for really bringing this this term of a growth mindset into practice. She conducted a study for um, on elementary kids, and she was having uh, these elementary children to progressively harder and harder math problems.
0: Sounds like my worst and, summer.
1: <laughs> right, exactly. And so eventually she started giving them problems that were actually you couldn't solve. They were unsolvable. And she noticed this very interesting phenomenon that there was a small subset of kids. And instead of getting frustrated, they actually got more and more excited. And it's not to say they were any more successful in solving the problems, but they leaned into the experience and mm-hmm. got excited the more challenge they faced. And so she said, "Well, that that's fascinating. What's going on there?" What she was able to tease out is that there are really two mindsets. There's a growth mindset and a fixed mindset. And a growth mindset is someone that recognizes that the friction they're feeling, the challenges they're feeling, is actually what it feels like to grow stronger. So when mm. you go for when you go for a run and you're like, "Man, I'm running really slow and my legs are really slogging and and this is really hard," someone with a growth mindset would say. Oh, this is me actually getting better. This is what getting better feels like. And that's awesome. And they're driven by that. It's really cool. Conversely, the opposite end of the opposite side of the coin is someone with a fixed mindset. And so, someone with a fixed mindset, when they encounter friction or failures, they view that as a reflection on their own self worth. So, oh, I'm not good enough. I'm not capable. I'm not worthy. And they bring it back to themselves as, that friction is my own capabilities. Failure. And who I am. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. What I talked about is that SEAL training, oftentimes these people with these God-given abilities, these talents have never been in a situation where they weren't able to lean on something that came natural to them, where they didn't feel like they could just lean back on, on what they were given. And so when that happened mm-hmm. for those people, they immediately turned it around and said, this is a reflection on me. And because of it, they decided to to stop training. They had everything they needed except the right mindset.
0: So when did you realize and- that? Like when did you as in your own journey was there a moment that you realized that that you were like, "Oh, I'm this isn't something that I'm meant to do. God-given abilities, but here I am doing it, and here I am doing it well and here I am enduring."
1: Oh, well, I I was born with the gift of not having any natural innate abilities. And so <laughs> Yeah. And so I'm not good. I'm not naturally good at anything. And my, my, my father, when I was growing up, he would always tell me all the decisions you face in life, 99.99% of the time, there's a hard way and an easy way. And he said, if you just take the hard way, you're going to be fine. I think whether he knew it or not at the time, he, he was giving me a little bit of this lean into the friction, lean into the hard way, cultivate this, this growth mindset thankfully, i didn't have I didn't have any God-given talents that I could lean on. So I had to get good at um, at not being good, and, and over time, that that served me well. Mm-hmm. Even just telling someone that these two mindsets exist and arming them with the information of oh here's here's two ways to process the same experience from from different perspectives allows them to recognize when a fixed mindset is coming up or an opportunity to leverage a growth mindset. And that's a very subtle thing, but it's a powerful shift.
0: So I feel like I really resonate with the fixed mindset. I was never inclined academically, so I always felt like I had a growth mindset because I needed to have one. But sports, running, etc., total fixed mindset. Like little voice in my head saying, you can't make it to that light post. Who are you kidding? I remember I'd always go to these spin classes and the instructor would say, dig deep. And I was just like, dig Dig where? Like, dig what are you talking about? And then one day I was just gassed. And and I just felt like that whole dig deep mentality, I just got it. Like all of a sudden it was this moment of realization. Oh, I can exist here. Like I can exist in the suck, but I'm fine. And I and now I almost seek it out. Is that is that realization the relationship between the next goal and the end game? Is that it? Or is it something totally different?
1: So I I think there are a couple things going on. I think the more you spend time being, getting comfortable with being uncomfortable, the better you get at it. Right. So the more friction you face, <laughs> it's, it's true, but the more friction you face um, the better you are at, at handling friction or handling stress. Right. If, uh, if you're engaging it in, in the right way, but as it maps to the the end goal and the, and the near term efforts that you have to put forth, the degree to which you can really think about and internalize, where you ultimately want to be, if you can have clarity around that and truly believe and connect with whatever that larger purpose or mission is, Mm -hmm. that that will be a source of strength, almost enduring fuel for you to handle these frictions, right? And so if, and it's hard to to map it back to a spin class, but if you know, (laughs) but if you know, like, all right, my goal is I want to be able to go on this long ride with my husband mm-hmm. you know, six months from now because it's gonna bring us together as a team and like that's gonna be amazing and that's gonna be the thing that sets us on a path to have kids and like this is all the positive things that can be mapped to that and then you're able to lean into that. Well, if you're telling me to dig deep and I don't care about where we're going, I don't have anything to dig towards mm-hmm. but if I care ultimately about what I'm going to, then you have this reservoir that you can lean into. Mm-hmm. I knew when I was going through SEAL training that, that they would have to kill me before I would quit. That that's how bad I wanted to be a SEAL and how bad I wanted to do something that I thought could make a positive difference in the world. I had read so many, you know, going back to the small steps, I had done so many things, reading, workouts, assessment, this whole mountain of work that I was able to lean back on that course I'm going towards this goal and no short-term spike in discomfort are going to set me off my path because my tether is quite strong to that ultimate destination. And that's going to be the thing that pulls me through.
0: Pat, it has been an absolute pleasure chatting with you today. I'm so thankful for your time. In knowing how intentional you are, I feel very grateful to have been a part of your day. So thank you for sharing everything that that you've learned over the years. And I'm excited to follow Made For in its journey.
1: Oh, it's amazing. Thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much. Cheers.
0: Thanks for tuning in. You can follow Nuance of Impact on Instagram for sneak peeks of who we're interviewing next. See you next time.